0: Today's episode of the Dad Tired Podcast is brought to you by Loam, the calm, fun, and visual calendar that the whole family can use to plan weekly events. Loam allows the entire family to get involved in the scheduling and planning of chores, activities, and tasks that every family needs to accomplish. Their calendar is customizable. It also allows you to add beautiful chore and bedtime charts for the whole family. You can skip the bedtime routine chaos that most of us young dads feel as your kids will learn to love the task charts that Loam offers. Not only is Loam a great tool for parents, it also serves even the youngest members in your family through image view mode, which is going to turn your calendar events and tasks into easy to see photos and icons that allow even your young non-readers in the family to use. If you find yourself stuck on ideas that the whole family can do together, Loam can help with that too. They offer suggestions for meals, activities, conversations, and all kinds of other things. You can even easily add your favorite recipes and links from online directly into the calendar, which conveniently syncs with other calendars and apps that you're already using. Loam was created by a couple dads, dad tired listeners, in fact, who love Jesus and want to be more intentional with their family and they want to give you the gift of simplifying your family as well. You can go to withloam.com forward slash dad tired and use the promo code dad tired all one word to get your first month free. Again, go to with loam.com. Forward slash dad tired, and then use the promo code dad tired to get your first month free. Joshua, super excited to be hanging out with you today, man! It's hilarious the stuff that we'll be talking about as we get in because I'm moving across the country with a, as a family of six, four young kids, ten and under, and so we're going to talk about how to like minimalize, become minimalist, and declutter our lives and the whole. I imagine we'll talk about that holistically, not just stuff, but like all, all the ways. But I feel the opposite of that today <laughs> as I'm, I, even as I'm sitting in my office right now, it's like empty, but over I've stashed a bunch of stuff over here where you can't see off camera and my house is just pure chaos. And as I'm like packing up, I'm like, why do we have so much stuff? But anyway, before we jump too far into that, tell us who you are, man, what you're up to these days, a little bit about yourself.
1: My name is Joshua Becker. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to introduce myself. I write on a website called becomingminimalist.com, and I've been doing that for the past 12 years, full-time for the last eight or nine years somewhere. I uh, seem to be losing track these days. Pastored for 15 years before doing that, and uh, so I certainly have a a heart for everything that you're doing. I have uh, two kids, my son, Salem is a freshman at ASU this year wow. and my daughter is a sophomore and we live here um, just outside Phoenix.
0: That's awesome man. How did you transition from the pastoral world to writing about minimalism? That's like a that's an interesting jump. I'd love to hear how that happened.
1: It was an interesting jump because I loved pastoring. I think most people well, I know a lot of people who can't wait to quit their day job to become a writer or to do something else, and I was never that case. I mm. loved pastoring. My grandpa was a pastor, and he used to say, if God called you into ministry, don't stoop to be a king. <laughs> so I, uh, I took that to heart and really loved what I was doing, but I... I started writing about minimalism. I started writing about the benefits of owning less and how it was changing my life in so many positive ways. And the audience grew, the time commitments grew, and I got to the point where I was probably a year and a half process, kind of discerning, hey, where should I be going with my life? And how can I best play the, you know, be most effective for the most number of people? and. Yeah, I just got to the point where I, where I couldn't do both full time. And so I thought to myself, there are a lot of people who are better pastors than I am, but I seem to have a pretty unique voice in helping people overcome consumerism and think about the things that they own differently. And so actually, that was about a year and a half conversation and then about a two-year
0: transition. So I usually say it took about three years to, to change roles there. And you know what's interesting? One thing that stuck out. This was kind of passing what you just said, but you talked about how you loved being a pastor, and uh, the thought just hit me, kind of a sad thought. But there's so many pastors who actually don't love being a pastor. There, there's a. I I can't remember what the stat is exactly. I always butcher stats on the show. I'm really terrible at that. (laughs) But I know Barna did a a study on it, and it was something. It was definitely over 50 percent of pastors say if they could get out. Of pastoral ministry, if they could like find a full-time job that paid the same, that they would do it like immediately. And that just breaks my heart. So to hear a guy who said, you know, I actually love to being a pastor, it's kind of rare. And no pastors would say that out loud, probably, but a lot of them feel it. It is a, it's a, it's a profession with
1: the, the highest of highs and and the lowest of lows. And I don't know, I suppose it's not too unique. Everyone has highs and, and lows and things they love about their work and things that they hate about their work. But whenever I would, whenever I would counsel people who are thinking about going into ministry or becoming a pastor, I would, I would always say, like, just make sure you know that God has called you into this. Like make sure you know that that God is here because there's going to be times where you're not going to want to do it. It's going to be really hard and you've got to be able to fall back on yeah, but I'm in the place that God called me to be, and so this may be a, a tough period, but this is where I'm. Uh, this is where I'm supposed to be.
0: Yeah, if it's not a calling, yeah, you're not going to survive in yeah. that world. You got to be called by God because it's it'll eat you up. If if not, if you're just trying to do something fun or different, <laughs> yeah.
1: just, so anyway, I love doing yeah. it. I hope I'm just doing a different ministry now, and uh, yeah. just helping people in a in a different way.
0: So. You know, you said you're you're we talked about consumerism. I feel like we're all swimming in an ocean of consumerism. A lot of us not even realize we're treading in those waters. How did you like was there an epiphany point for you were like I'm in the thick of consumerism and I and I need to face it?
1: Yeah. It was a Saturday morning. I was oh, living wow. in Vermont. It was it was a life changing moment actually. I had gone out to clean my garage after this long winter in Vermont. My son was five and Thought we would bond on this Saturday, cleaning out the garage. Of course, he lasted for about 30 seconds. And <laughs> right. He was in the backyard begging me to play catch, and I'm like, I can't. I got to clean the garage. And so I'm working on the garage hours later, and I strike up a conversation with my neighbor where I was complaining about how much time had gone into the garage cleaning it, and she was complaining about how much time she had gone into taking care of her yard, and She said, you know, that's why my daughter is a minimalist. She keeps telling me I don't need to own all this stuff. And I remember looking at this pile of things in my driveway. I pulled out of the garage to hose it all down and organize it. And like I would have said, like most people, that I wasn't looking for happiness in my possessions, that my things weren't making me happy. Like we would all say this out loud, as you referenced, what we say out loud and what we think. I wasn't looking for happiness in the things that I owned, but out of the corner of my eye, I could see my five-year-old son playing alone in the backyard where he'd been all Mm. morning long and suddenly Mm. had this realization that not only were the things that I owned not making me happy, but the things that I owned were actually taking me away from the very thing that did bring me happiness and meaning and joy and significance in life and that was the epiphany moment. That was the the light bulb moment of, hey, these things that I own carry uh, weight. And, and the more I have, the more they distract me, my time and money and focus and energy. They keep me from things in life that actually matter in the long run. So that was what started our process of just, hey, we're just going to get rid of what we don't need. And I don't know, live this Live this novel idea of a life where you would just own the things that you need. What a crazy idea that you would just (laughs) own the things that you
0: need. Well, it's interesting you said we, we started. So I'm assuming your wife jumped in on board with you. Like, what was that conversation like? And I'll tell you from selfishly, like I said, I'm moving across the country and we have a shed in our backyard. There are huge parts of me that would love to be a minimalist, but my wife won't let me throw away all her stuff. So how did you have a conversation with your wife? Like, what was that like?
1: my wife was on board to an extent uh, she had been cleaning the inside of the house we were doing our spring cleaning that yeah, day yeah. so when i came with the idea of hey maybe we could own less stuff she was all in but i usually say if i want to get rid of 80 percent of our stuff she wanted to get rid of 40 or 50 percent of our stuff and so like the first 40 or 50 percent was pretty easy and then i'm like let's keep going and let's get rid of more and she's like oh, i think we're at a pretty good Pretty good point. Um, which I think is how it is with most, it's how it is with probably everything in life in a relationship. Like we can agree, like we both have the same faith, but how does that actually play itself out in life? Like, yeah, what does it mean about small groups that we're into? Or what does it mean about being involved at church? Like, And we're on the same page about raising our children and discipline, but like to what level do we take our different viewpoints? Um, so that's what I found to be the case. And you just, you know, you, you work through compromise at that point. I, I would say this probably, I learned something really early on. I was speaking at an event in Orlando and this guy came up to me and he said, hey, I love everything you said. I'd love to be a minimalist, but my wife would never go for it. And so we talked it over and about five minutes later, the wife comes up to me. I thought they had talked, but they hadn't. Mm. She says to me, hey, just want you to know, I really want to be a minimalist, but my husband wants (laughs) nothing to do with it. And I think I learned it it is always easier to see everyone else's clutter than it is to see our own. And it's very easy to look at our spouse or partner and think that they own a whole bunch of stuff that they don't need meanwhile they're probably looking at our stuff thinking that we have a lot of stuff that we don't need and certainly there are cases where that is the reality that one is on a completely different page than the other but man i I always think the best step is to is you got to do your own stuff first like if you're going to go down this road this minimalism journey of trying to own fewer things like you can't buy into the idea of owning less and make your kids or make your spouse get rid of their things first, like almost to the level of once you've gotten rid of everything that you don't need, then you can start putting that expectation on your spouse. But that's probably a bit extreme, but yeah.
0: Still- uh, well, it's a, it's a little convicting too. Cause okay. Good. I'm, that I'm was, like, that's really yeah. what I was going for. <laughs> I'm like, Oh man, I think it, I'm just like looking around, even this office. I'm like, you know, i probably actually have a lot more stuff than she does. I want to get into some of the practical stuff, but first, before we do, like, I'd love to, there's become, I'm sure when you started to think about this, the word minimalism was a very rare word and very few people were talking about it or like, what does that even mean? And since then, a lot of stuff has come out. I've seen more and more documentaries and books and TV shows and things like that about it. But from a Christian perspective, because there's a lot of perspectives on minimalism, but like from a, I'm trying to follow Jesus better. I'm trying to help my family follow Jesus better. And it's bigger than, well, I just want to have a tidier space. Like there's deeper stuff happening and very rarely do we make the tie between oh, I have a ton of stuff and I'm looking for joy in my stuff, maybe subconsciously, making that tie to my spiritual journey. And how is that affecting my relationship with the Lord? How is that affecting my relationship with my wife, my kids, the people around me? Can you help us bridge that gap?
1: Yeah. Let me make two points about it, although there's probably a hundred that could be made. For me, it was not a Spiritual journey at first. Mm -hmm. At first, it was simply, hey, I just wasted an entire morning taking care of stuff that I don't need when I could have been investing into my son. And I want to own less so I can spend more time with my son and my daughter. I had a daughter at the time as well. And so I began this process of owning less. And as I started owning less, like our lives freed up in. Very significant ways. Like it is not difficult to imagine how owning less stuff means that we would have more money available, that we would have more time, that we would have less stress, that there would be more space. We'd be living a better example for our kids, that more contentment and gratitude and generosity and like all these things were happening in my life. And maybe a month or two into it, I remember turning to Kim and I said, I don't know where has minimalism been my entire life? Like, how come no one told me about minimalism Hmm. before I was in my mid thirties at the time? I'm like, how come no one told me about this before? And I caught myself mid sentence because it occurred to me that Jesus was saying this thousands of years ago. Like he told the rich young rulers, sell your possessions, come follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. and John the Baptist, when he was preparing Israel for Jesus to come, he's like, if you have two coats, get rid of the one you don't need and do the same with your food. And like over and over again, life is not found in the abundance of possessions. And like over and over again, Jesus was telling us, don't own more stuff than you need. Mm. But for some reason, every time I heard that, I thought to myself, man, Jesus wants me to live a miserable life on earth. Like, I get it. I make all these sacrifices today, and then in heaven, I'll have these rewards. But it's just going to be pretty crummy for a little while. Until I started actually doing what he said. And I found out that, no, he wasn't calling me to a a boring life today. He was calling me to a bigger life, a a better life, a more meaningful life, a, a life focused on things that that actually bring real lasting joy rather than the, the stuff we buy at Target that lasts for about a couple of weeks. And then, you know, it just sits on a shelf somewhere. And so it didn't start as a spiritual journey, but I started to see everything that Jesus said about money and possessions entirely different, that he was inviting me to a better way to live. Go, go figure. Right. Then I, I learned two things also besides that. Number one, that That I don't think we ever fully appreciate or understand how attached we are to our physical possessions until we begin to remove them. Mm. That this really is a, a difficult process and step. And we learn a lot of things about ourselves, starting with, like, why did I buy all this stuff in the first place? Like, why did I spend money on things that I don't need? Why am I holding on to things that some family in my town is desperately praying for and needs, mm-hmm. and some single mother somewhere could use all these things piled up in my basement. And yet, I'm keeping them all for myself. I think we learn a lot about ourselves, how tied we are to the world. And then we just free ourselves up for for service in new ways. Once mm-hmm. we remove the pursuit of possessions and remove the pursuit of needing to be rich, I, you know, it really opens up our time and our life to play a bigger role in the kingdom, which I think is what Jesus was getting at with the, with the rich young ruler. He's like, sell your possessions, give to the poor, come follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. And I think he meant it. I think he meant it, that it's tough to, to follow him and serve him fully when we're carrying boxes full of stuff. No offense to you moving. Well, <laughs>
0: I'll distinguish between the offensiveness and the conviction, like I'll, I'll tease those two apart. I love what you said there because I think it is an invitation to to rest and to good news. It wasn't like, "Hey, just let me figure out how I can make your life even more miserable." It was a, this is just what Jesus does all the time. Like you're, you're, it's an invitation to come and taste what's actually good. And he's saying, you have convinced yourself that all these other things are good, and they're not. And so let me come back to the water that actually satisfies, as he told the woman at the well. Or eat a, the bread of life who will, and you'll never be hungry again. Like we all know we've tasted every other thing and yeah. we're hungry again. I just, I was having this conversation with my son yesterday. He was at a birthday party and his friend got this really cool. I wasn't there, but I, he was describing, like, it sounded like a four wheeler or some kind of you know cool quad or something. Yeah. And he was asking his friend, like, do you ride this thing all day, every day? And his friend's like, yeah. And, and my son was just so like, how could he not just be so excited about this thing? It's the coolest thing in the world. And I said, and this is something we've talked about a ton of times. I said, well, son, what do we know about stuff? I just asked him that question. What do we know about stuff? And he said, it ne- he kind of sheepishly, I like, put his head down. He's like, it never satisfies. And then he was like, but man, it seems like that would really satisfy, you know? Yeah. And I said, son, if you had it, you would be in the same position. It doesn't matter what the world offers you. Eventually your heart always wants more than what the world can offer. And so I think you're right, man. Like, and you know, what's crazy about that is it starts so young. I mean, we have our two and three year olds guys who are listening to this, and we walk through Target or Walmart or whatever, and they're convinced if they had that toy or that thing that finally they would be satisfied. And I always say, like, I always ask my kids. I've been doing this since they were young. Do you think that that thing, that toy, will actually satisfy you? And they're like, yes. I'm like, well, how come? How come yesterday's didn't? How come yesterday's toy didn't? But I'm interested to hear your perspective because it seems like we're. I mentioned we're all swimming in this ocean. It seems like kind of we're born into this world of consumerism. It is kind of a. Or I guess I would ask you: Do you think it's a, it's a kind of a Western thing? It's a response to abundance in many ways. Would you agree with that? Like a lot of the world lives as minimalist because that's all they they only have what they sure. need. Sure. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Sure. So many. I was I spoke one time in a church. A uh, missionary to Africa happened to be in the audience. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, I just want you to know that I work in some of the the poorest places in the world. And I want you to know that your message is still important there. Interesting. Not because they have 2000 square foot homes full of stuff, but because they see people with 2000 square foot homes full of stuff and just like your son, think to themselves, mm. my life would be better if I had that. And so it's a different message to someone who already has a house full of stuff. And their first step is, hey, I need to get back to a better baseline understanding of what I need so that I can live my best life. It's a different conversation than someone who doesn't have the the financial means to be at that level, but wants the means to be at that level. So anyway, there's a point where yes and no, certainly in, in our culture, it's not just the abundance and the affordability and the accessibility of physical possessions, but it's also the manufactured urgency or the manufactured need for those things that we see 5,000 advertisements every single day and every single advertisement tells us that our life will be better if we buy whatever they're selling. Like when you think about it, this is really the the core of every advertisement that our life will be better yeah. if we buy the thing they're, that they're selling. And I just think we see it so many times and it's so commonplace among us that we we really subtly begin... To believe it. And we begin to, to buy into it and start desiring bigger houses and nicer cars and trendier fashion and newer technology and more toys. And like, we just want all this stuff because it's things aren't like, we've all got, we all have everything we need, but somehow the world is able to take what is a want and make it become a need um, so much so that we think that we have to have it. And I would just say one other thing concerning concerning children. It's interesting because as you were talking about your son wanting the the cool new toy that his friend had, I, parents all the time will be like, you know, how do I help my kid not want things that he doesn't need? And I'm like, well, first you got to start by not wanting things that you don't need. Mm-hmm. Like it it really starts with us as parents. And it's hard to tell our kids when we're in target buying something that we want to buy in Target mm. and, and they're there with us and they see the toy and they're like, well, this is why I do a Target. I buy things that I want. So <laughs> how about I have this thing? You're the one who dragged me here, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it's, it's hard to say. It's a tough conversation to tell our kids to not want things that they don't need. When our closets are full of things that we don't need and we can't park in our garages because of all the stuff we have that that we don't need. And mm-hmm. honestly, like making this decision to own less stuff on purpose, like the example, I think that it's set for my kids has been one of the, I mean, one of the greatest blessings of all. Not that we've done it right. Like no one does it right all the time, but certainly how we think about the things that we buy and where we spend our money, put a lot of thought and effort into that. And they understand
0: that. Yeah, going back to the beginning of what you're talking about, I I once taught a message and I and I said you don't have to be rich to have a love for money. That verse when Jesus says you either worship me or you worship money, which by the way is is the only time he ever compared himself to another god was money. Essentially, when you pick your worship, it's either me or money. Choose one. And when we're talking in for this conversation, money is stuff. You know the, the stuff that money represents. But you don't have to be rich to have that love of money. You can be poor <laughs> and really long what you're describing like I I'm convinced even if I don't have money, I'm convinced that if I had more or more stuff or a bigger bank account or, or a room full of things that then I'd finally have joy and peace and contentment. Yeah. And that's a lie. That a lot of us and I'd probably say most of us are falling into on a on a daily basis. What did it look like for you practically going from that conversation in the garage? Your neighbor says, my daughter's a minimalist. How did you go from that? Like, what were the practical next steps to go from that to like, did you just hire a dump company, you know, like a a company to come remove your trash? 1-800-JUNK <laughs> removal or whatever. And like, what was the next step?
1: No, we uh, we didn't. Although, you know, I think we did find some local charities that were doing some some mm. good work, not just the Goodwill and Salvation, but Salvation Army, but the... Burlington Care Net Pregnancy Center that was mm-hmm. you know taking all of our kids stuff that our baby stuff that our kids had outgrown. There was a refugee resettlement program in Vermont that was uh, always looking for for housewares to to outfit a home for new families, and so finding those opportunities really I think fostered more generosity, and we were able to see more things that we could get rid of, knowing that there were people who who needed them. The process that I kind of stumbled upon maybe more haphazardly than than I remember. But the process I take people through now is to minimize your spaces. I always say, room by room, starting with the easiest, most lived in spaces. Because a lot of people can hear about minimalism or owning less. And their first thought is, number one, well, I could never get rid of my books, so I can never get rid of my sentimental items. Or they think of, yeah, I really need to go through the garage. I really need to go through the attic or the basement. And then you can go spend an hour and a half in the basement and see no progress whatsoever and kind of throw up your arms in, in frustration. And so I would say find an easy space that you can finish, a space that you use so that you can see and feel the difference right away like your car is a great place to start, mm. like go out and just take everything out of your car that doesn't need to be there. And the very next time you sit down to drive somewhere, like you can just feel mm. like the weight off of your shoulders that it's it's calmer, it's more peaceful, it's more intentional. There's not water bottles, you know, rolling around in the back or whatever it might be. And so I actually started with my car cause I had done the garage and, uh, pulled my garage bike car back in at the end of the day. And then we did our living room and it didn't take a ton of time, but there was a lot of stuff in the living room that didn't need to be there. And I just remember sitting down at the end of the day and the room felt so much better than it had felt in the morning and thinking to myself, where else can I have this same calm and peace in my home and in my life? And so the bedroom and then the the bathroom and then the closets and Kind of the kitchen, like you build up to some of these harder spaces, a little bit like building up a muscle, I think
0: is the way to, way I like to explain it. It gets addicting. I've done this several times in our life. Layla and I say, my wife, we say this all the time, like cluttered space, cluttered mind. And we feel that when when things start to get cluttered, it affects every other area. And the joy of having less stuff and having less cluttered space is, I mean, there's so many things about it, but one, you feel that deep sense of like peace. Like when you sit in your car, it started with just clearing out the water bottles or the trash or the kids' chicken nuggets that were stuck under the (laughs) chair or whatever, but it really does something to the mind, like your mind. And it frees up that space. And all of a sudden you're thinking about different things. You feel a little bit deeper sense of rest, which again, I think was the invitation that Jesus was inviting us into on that deeper sense of shalom there are many times now where I will sit in our backyard on the patio and just like feel the fresh air, like have less stuff. And I know that our house isn't full of stuff in those seasons of like decluttering. And you feel like it just, you know, if I want to hear from the Lord, if I want the Lord to speak to me, having a mindset Mm -hmm. that doesn't feel cluttered feels a little bit easier to hear what God wants to say to me. And so, I mean, I love the idea with starting with car because I think that's really tangible, really practical way that guys can start Immediately. You have a book, a new book, right? That you just, yeah. Just, yeah. You tell us about It Comes the book. out in April. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sweet. Tell us about it.
1: Coming up. Called Things That Matter Overcoming Distraction to Live a More Meaningful Life. Yeah. I certainly talk about the distraction of possessions in the book, but I also have a book, The Minimalist Home, which is much more specific about minimizing possessions. And this new book, I think, takes the ultimately minimalism for me became. Minimalism is about removing distractions so that I can focus my life on things that matter most. Like that's how I define it. And that looks different for every person depending on what they value most, depending on where they live and how big their family is. Like there's a lot of different factors that go into what do I keep and and what do I get rid of? But ultimately it's about how do I live a life of purpose, uh, focused on things that that matter most. And so The new book, yeah, Things That Matter, it's about, really, it's about more than just possessions. It's about how does our pursuit of money get in the way of things that matter most? 80% of Americans uh, say they'll be happier if they had more money. Mm. And it begins to, like, it just drives our thought process and our motivations and how we spend our time. And so I go through eight different distractions, money, possessions, fear, accolades, technology, selfish. Pursuits, and a couple others that um, it's good. I am pretty proud of it.
0: That's awesome, man. Fear was an interesting one to put on that list. I, I'm i having a hard time tying fear to that, the minimalist mindset. What, can you make that tie for us?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the book isn't specifically about minimalism. The book is about what are some of the things in our lives that we focus on that can keep us from things that actually matter or living our best life going forward. And so I wanted to talk about more than just some of the things that we pursue in America, like money and possessions and fame and some of those types of things, leisure. um, There's a whole section on the importance of work and uh, seeing the value of it. But I actually start out with two pretty important conversations. Number one, about how fear can keep us from living our, our best life, fear of trying or fear of starting over, how some of those fears can limit our potential and serve as a distraction in a way. And then also a a chapter on past mistakes. 60% of Americans say that mistakes in their past keep them from reaching their fullest potential today. And so not just past mistakes that they may have committed, but sometimes past mistakes that were committed against them. I did a whole survey nationwide survey to find out like what is keeping people from living their best life and, and making the biggest difference in the world. And, and those were two that, that popped up repeatedly. The book starts with addressing those two issues and then it goes into some of these other conversations as well.
0: Mm. Man, really, really good stuff. I'm excited to get the book and book in, the, in our listeners hands. Thank you for taking the time to hang out with us today and share a little bit of your story. I think this can be really helpful for a lot of guys listening, but it's great meeting you, man. No, this
1: is good, man. I appreciate your work and all the stuff you're doing. Good for you, man. It's important. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that episode. Just want to give you a quick reminder that Dad Tired is a nonprofit ministry supported by you, the Dad Tired listeners. If you find this podcast helpful and it helps point you to Jesus, helps you be a better husband, father, disciple, would you consider joining us monthly? Even five or 10 bucks a month is a huge help. It allows us to continue to do this podcast, to put resources out. We've got conferences planned this year. We've got a big retreat planned this year. Children's book planned this year. Release of another book. Dad Tired, the second Dad Tired book is coming out. Anyway, we just want to keep putting more and more resources in your hands to help you and guys like you fall in love with jesus and help their family do the same so if it's helpful for you at all we really would love if you join us go to dadtired.com forward slash give again you can go to dadtired.com forward slash give means so much we'll see you guys next week